Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court ruling, whether or not we should be wearing masks, and we'll be joined by Pastor Tyron Laws. You're listening to The Common Good. Everyone, welcome to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. On this beautiful Monday, yes. I know yes, that I, I probably show my cards too often in admitting that I'm outside, but I don't even feel bad about it right now. My goodness, this is about as good as it gets, in my opinion. This is gorgeous. Are you outside, Brian? So I am not. Uh, first, I will agree with you. Uh, happy Monday. I will agree with you that I this. I did not say Happy Monday for the record. I was giving it to you, but this is as beautiful as it gets. Like. Uh, Saturday, Sunday, today, this weather is perfect. But you and I were discussing before we got on air that you are like just a couple towns, like two towns over from me. And we have the loudest cicadas in my town. And you don't have any like I don't not sure that I could even do the show outside right now. I think you should assume that that's some sort of biblical plague that's been sent to your house specifically, Brian. And this is now the time for you to metanoia. It's time to repent. <laughs> it's time. To, it might be true because when I drive down the church, which is like 10 minutes south of me, no cicadas. But like here, it's like, uh, it, yeah, it is like a plague of biblical proportion. So maybe yeah, we do need to hint, have man. that talk at a more deep level. Take the hint. All right. Before we get into the Supreme Court ruling today, a couple of things. You can find us on Facebook. The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles. There's some lively conversations happening in the comment section there. You can send us a message. You can rate and review that page. That helps. You can also find us at 1160hope.com and wherever it is you get your podcasts. I don't, should we give, how can we better incentivize subscribing, rating, and reviewing to the podcast? Any ideas? Yeah, I mean, we've tried begging. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you've tried begging. Regularly, regularly. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe cash, cash prizes. I don't know. What would cool. it be? We, we, dr- we draw a name. And, uh, Brian Fromm will be happy to send you uh, his <laughs> bank info and you can withdraw whatever amount you think is right for you for every subscription review. Also, yeah. that share button helps us out a whole lot. And uh, we're, I do want to say we're super grateful. I know a lot of you already have done that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That helps us out a whole ton. You, you can't yeah. really hop on social media today without seeing the Supreme Court ruling, and boy, is the Internet divided on this one. Why why don't you get us into the specifics a little bit, and then we'll dive into it. Yeah, and you gave us a bunch of uh, articles to read that I really tore into because at first – uh, there's the one side of things that, that you read or see on CNN. I was watching CNN and it came across the bottom that, uh, basically dis- discrimination against LGBTQ community is, has been outlawed, right? And you, you see that and you're like, was it ever not outlawed? Like that, that surprised me. And I was like, well, that's a great thing. And, and on, on many aspects, it is a great thing. Uh, but then I read Russell Moore and I read Gospel Coalition and yeah. some of the nuances of the case. And I was like, oh, this is a lot more complicated than just the headlines often are that they were today. Uh, and so maybe we'll dive into the Russell Moore stuff. But it becomes a very complicated case really around uh, is the Supreme Court today uh, kind of um, expanding and even redefining uh, in their opinion, what falls under the category of sex in Title VIII uh, of the 1964 Civil Rights Documents, where, where you can't discriminate against, uh, you know, race, religion, or sex. And today, many people think that they expanded that now to be uh, sexual orientation. Uh, and however, anybody decides to, um, 
whatever they decide their gender is. And so there are people who are going, no, this is a, this is not a good thing. And so we, you know, when I first heard it, I'm like, yeah, we don't want to be for any kind of discrimination, but it is certainly much more complicated than that. Okay. So what, what in your mind is the most complicated part of it? Cause one of the headlines that I had here was from CNBC and the headline reads Supreme court rules. Workers can't be fired for being gay or transgender, to which I would say good, yep. right? That's, that's a good, that's a good thing. I think, right? Would you agree with that? I think that's a good thing. Supreme I, Court rulers, rules workers can't be fired for being gay or transgender. Yeah. No, no, I agree uh, that that's a good thing. But when you read the uh, – so one of – there was three um, different court cases put into one here is kind of how it went. Right. Uh, and one of them uh, specifically called Bostick versus Clay County, Georgia, uh, was a guy – who owned a uh, family-owned funeral home, right? And so he had a funeral director who regularly meets with their clients uh, and is regularly there with grieving families. Uh, this gentleman who then came into his office and said, I'm going to start self-identifying as a woman, and I'm going to start immediately dressing as a woman, even though I'm not going to start, I'm not going to have uh, surgery for another year. And the the funeral director said, that doesn't work for us. Like, that's... Mm. Being the face of our company, the person meets with people, that's just not going to work. Offered him a big severance package. The guy declined it, sued him. And that's one of the ones that ended up on the steps of the Supreme Court today. Mm. Uh, And you could see the funeral director being, you know, if you have certain beliefs, uh, but also you're kind of thinking about what does this mean for people coming into my office? Like, it's just more murky. I'm not even saying what the right answer is to that. Um, But it's, it's, it's a little more murkier there for me than just discrimination bad let's get rid of all of it because you just gotta uh and then the other one russell moore really dives into and this will be up on our facebook page uh he dives into because i was trying to figure out why would the three justices dissent like against a discrimination case what would the dissent be and their dissent was that it's congress who makes the law and that the court here is kind of expanding a law that wasn't written this way. And so there's a little bit of that as well. Uh, but, you know, what you and I, the world we live in, what does this mean for churches? What does this mean for uh, churches that have a very specific view of sexuality going forward? And uh, so it'll be interesting the way this plays out. Again, I want to say discrimination bad. Like this is we, we don't want to discriminate against um uh, against people of, of all gender, race, whatever else. Uh, but it's just a little more complicated for me that I, than I, when I thought when I woke up and I saw this and I was like, okay, that doesn't seem very complicated. But So, so point, uh, number two, point number two of three here in the Gospel Coalition is says, second, it will further undermine religious freedom as the Harris funeral case, uh, funeral home case shows. Christian-owned businesses can be required to hire and accommodate transgender persons, even for roles in which it would violate their employer's moral and religious beliefs. Is is that part true? It sounds like the story that you just told is that something happened while they were employed. Does this restrict religious institutions for saying for being able to still put whatever parameters they want into their handbooks or into their uh, their own policies and governance? So you and I like to say how, you know, we're not lawyers, we're not doctors. So sometimes we feel over our skis. The reading I have done uh, says absolutely like it's the same uh, the same, um, uh, you know, you can't discriminate for race, gender, sex. Now this is this has expanded that in terms of hiring, firing, and all of that. The same reason I can't 
either not hire you or hire you based on any of those categories. This has just expanded that. And so uh, there are some thoughts. Russell Moore writes about this. So does the Gospel Coalition, that there will be some very specific language for churches that kind of uh, accommodate that. But uh, that was, um, I think it was Justice Alito in his writings today. He basically said, we've kind of opened the door uh, to something that I'm not sure was intended. And so there seems to be all over the board. And uh, I'd encourage people to go read it because the headlines, I'm not sure on either side, right? The really conservative or the really liberal head headlines or just the down the middle headlines are that helpful in this. So I'd go read the documents and uh, kind of decide, work it through for yourself. Brian, another question. Would the Facebook page be a good place for people to offer their thoughts or comments? It always is. It always is. Sometimes it feels like it gets us in trouble, but then we go, keep going, people. Yeah, no, great we, place for that. We got to be. I mean, I do think we need to be willing, though, to have important, patient, measured dialogue about this, too, Agreed. because I do recognize that even like our little tiny corner of the Internet here, this is like something that a lot of us probably either disagree on or don't quite know nope. where we land. And I, per I personally, I would love for our Facebook page to be a place. I know it's not a perfect medium, but for us to have. Yep. Helpful dialogue. If you have other resources, other articles, other considerations you'd like for us to consider in future shows, please send us a message or drop it in the comment section. We really do appreciate that a whole lot. Coming up next, we're going to be joined by Tyron Laws, pastor at the Christian Fellowship, to talk not only about his ministry, but also his book. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles, all of our podcast links. You can send us a message there. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, and wherever it is you get your podcasts. And Brian and I have been saying, now, now for a few weeks in particular, how we really want to assume a posture of listener, of learner, in some cases, unlearning some stuff and we've just had an incredible array of guests mainly in the city of chicago leaders pastors thinkers that's been uh, just incredibly helpful for all of us and i'm absolutely thrilled to have on the line pastor tyron laws welcome to the show sir thank you sir thank you Could so you just much do I'm us glad a quick to be favor on. and introduce yourself to our audience sure uh, tyron laws i pastor the christian fellowship missionary baptist church in west pullman neighborhood of chicago i've been here about seven years uh, married 13 years, three boys, um, an author of the book, The Roundtable, which is an mm. urban apologetic book, and a current fourth-year PhD student at Wheaton College, right New on. Testament Biblical Studies. Uh, Tyron, thank you so much for joining us as a uh, as a Wheaton grad. Glad to have another Wheaton, Wheaton uh, person on here. As a uh, Judson hey. grad, I feel threatened. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, you know, as we've, as he had said, we've had so many pastors on over the last couple of weeks, and we've basically asked the same question each time. And that's just, what have these last three weeks or so been like for you and also for your church? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's been, um, yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been, it's been a challenge, right? We've, we've had to deal with the pandemic and trying to get a, uh, a culture, um, you know, the black church, ex the black church experience is kind of a major, you know, it's a major, that, that experience, that meeting together. I mean, I, I think all believers, um, have that, um, that need, but there's something about, you know, the black church experience that, that 
Um, we've now had to kind of rethink some things as we virtual meeting and it's been going great. Uh, we've seen tremendous, um, or interesting thing God do, God is doing with our, uh, congregation. We actually had members join online and so that's been great. But then we've also had to deal with, um, the other challenges, um, you know, the, um, the, the social distancing and the, 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 all the emotional baggage that comes with that. And then of course, with the, um, with the protests and the rioting and things of that matter. So it's just, it's just kind of been all over the place. I just felt myself, um, interestingly, um, just mm-hmm. do a lot more counseling and trying to do theology and trying to right. help our people think through this in a very, um, yeah, productive way. And it's just, yeah, just a lot. And I'm, I'm not even sure I'm finished or completed processing yeah. all of the, all of that and, but yeah, it's, it's been overwhelming, but it's also been, in some cases, rewarding. And it's just kind of been this mm. both and where God, you see God doing things, but you also, you're, you're trying to navigate it and you're trying to help people and the whole community navigate it through it. So, so one of the yeah. things that Brian and I keep hearing, because we're both pastors, we're actually pastors first, and then we do this radio thing kind of on the side. And one of the things that I see and hear a lot, particularly when it comes to matters of race and racial reconciliation I hear from a lot of people say, just preach the gospel. Why, why are you trying to bring race into this? You're a pastor. Why don't you just preach the gospel and not get distracted by all this other stuff? What, what would you say to someone who feels or thinks that deeply? Yeah, I guess I would say is that um, definitions and delimitations of the gospel mm-hmm. are often used um, as kind of to abuse um, almost abusively in this conversation, right? So kind of how you, um, it's it's so easy just to kind of take a very narrow, narrow view of kind of Paul, how Paul presents the gospel, which is the gospel. They're not in conflict with what I'm about to say, um, but it's only portions of it, right? And so it's like, oh, the death, burial, mm-hmm. resurrection, that's the gospel. And so well, if you delimit to that, yeah, then it's, then it's clear. It's easy right. how you can come up with a definition that these other right. things are distraction to that, right? But if, for example, if I took like the Gospels, then most of the most of the uh, the Gospels concept of the Gospel and this, you know, the 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 bringing of the good news is grounded very heavily in Isaiah's language, right? Return from exile language. Um, I, I love to take the people Isaiah fifty two and seven, um, um, where, where he talks about. Uh, no, we, we know the, the first part, the lovely on the mountain, which Paul brings, Paul alludes to too, right? Are the feet of him who bring the good news when he says, who announces peace, brings good news to us of happiness, who announces salvation, saying to Zion, and here's the key word, mm-hmm. your God reigns, right? And so there's, this, there's, an, there's an element, the background of the gospel is that it is the inbreaking of the kingdom mm-hmm. of God into our everyday existence, which is essentially what the right. incarnation of Jesus Christ is, right? It is the in breaking into that reality. Jesus says, right. pray thy kingdom come. And so if, and so in light of that, that means that, that means that there's a, um, if it's a, if it's a breaking into our everyday existence, um, if I can use this word, that means we're going to, the gospel requires for us to have a Christ centered hmm. sociology. It requires that. It requires that. And so, yeah, that that would be my response. Uh, at least one That's of my really responses good. to it. Yeah. So you were talking earlier about uh, everything from the pandemic to the protests and the riots and everything else. You're needing to do a lot of counseling. Uh, I'm wondering, as people are turning to you from your congregation or wherever else, 
what are your words to them? Where, how are you giving hope and uh, kind of how are you counseling people right now? I, I can hear the laugh. Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's difficult because we, see, oh man, we are, we're dealing with this unrest, not only socially, but there's an unrest yeah. that's happening theologically within, within the American community. It's in fact, one of the reasons why um, I, I, my, my co-author and I wrote the book that we wrote because um, uh, take, for example, the Hebrew Israelites and things that matter, right? There, there's a, there's a, there's a need for theodicy. And different religious uh, groups within a black community are coming up with different forms and different answers to the theodicy hmm. um, question. This question of evil, what is God's response to it? And, um, and just give you one, I, I got about two minutes on this, whatever, but let me just give you uh, an illustration. On, on my, my church and I and a few others were out uh, maybe a week ago praying we, um, we, we felt all the unrest and of course there was looting and different things. And we intercepted a, um, a about, uh, a group of young men, um, trying to assault, mm. uh, a Latino man, um, because of there was in, in the midst of all of this in Chicago, you also got potential mm-hmm. race wars being started. And we, as I'm literally 30 minutes spending with this guy and church members across the street trying to pray um, I, I'm, I, I'm have to have a conversation with him about, man, don't talk about turn the other cheek. You see what they're doing to us and all this kind of stuff. And it's like in the moment, we had to do theology and try to figure out how to wait to get to the gear. And we, by God's grace, we were able to talk them down at the ledge, but they had picked up rocks. They were throwing it, um, trying to break the guy's window out and all this kind of different stuff. And by God's grace, it didn't break. And we were able to kind of diffuse this, but it, so this is part of the, this is part of the thing is that we're now being challenged. Not just it's not just a civil unrest. Mm. There's a theological unrest, and where it's like, okay, well, you, you all keep saying that this is God's way, that this is how we ought to respond to this. But look what it's getting us. And then on top of that, look how other communities, your your white brothers and Christian uh, Christian brothers and sisters, um, don't seem to don't seem to um, mm. call out these injustices. They they have a they have a kind of a theology of violence and the, and the, the argument is well um, when when police officers kill uh, black people it is hmm. Christians that are justifying it well they were criminal they were this they were that and so they have a theology of violence and, and so it's it's just like it's, it's it's challenging me on a very another level to be to kind of rethink some things go through some things get a, a stronger grasp of some things because it's 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 shown that the um, the implications of it is literally oh, life and death in our community. Thing. I'm so glad that you stick around with us for a second segment. You've been listening to Pastor Tyron Laws, pastor at the Christian Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church, also the co-author of The Roundtable, a Christian's conversation with marginal beliefs affecting the black church experience. Sticking around for one more segment here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a bunch of places, probably too many places, on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post our articles. You can send us messages. You can also find us at 1160hope.com slash The Common Good and wherever it is you get podcasts. If you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating, and reviewing at all those places does really help us out a whole lot. As Brian and I have been saying, for really a lot of the show's history, but in the last three weeks in particular, why don't we assume a posture of listener, of learner, in, in many cases, lamenter, just lamenting the things that we're seeing in our world. 
And we're absolutely thrilled to be joined still by Pastor Tyron Laws, pastor at the Christian Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church, also co-author of The Roundtable, a Christian's conversation with marginal beliefs affecting the black, the black church experience, which was published back in 2016. Pastor, I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit about that book, why you wrote it, and why that conversation is still so important today? Yeah. So the book is an urban apologetic. It, it deals with about six uh, ideas that um, are pernicious and dangerous in the in the, to the African American uh, Christian um, community. It is sought it is uh, to is seeking to uh, address particularly black millennials, but it, it's it's relevant um, in, in in any kind of context. But particularly their defection from the black church, and so we deal with black atheism. We deal with Israelite, which is kind of this Judaism with black nationalism and black Eastern mysticism and um, kind of pan-Africanism uh, movements that trying to um, create an identity, um, these kind of identity cults, so to speak. And so, yeah, we try to address that and we do it in a kind of a narrative form and as far as, and also a critical mm. analysis form. So each, each chapter has a kind of a vignette, kind of a story. It kind of personifies these ideologies so that the reader can um, interact with them, and then we kind of give some assessment. Um, it's still relevant because, in many ways, um, most of these these uh, what we call them in urban apologetics context, black mm. religious identity cults, are a result of white um, um, racism, white imperialism. It's a response to that. It's a way of them trying. It's, it's, it's essentially saying the black community is saying we no longer buy into uh, the Christian motifs. We, um, we are now going into other religions to find an identity, in particular an identity that will help us respond to this issue of racism. That's great. So that's why it's still relevant. As uh, Ian mentioned to you, uh, Pastor Laws, that him and I are both pastors out here in the suburbs, and uh, I at least serve in a very predominantly white church. What do you wish that I, as a pastor of white church, or maybe my congregation knew uh, about the African-American church? What would, what would you wish we knew that could kind of make a bit of a bridge? Um, well, I, I think this, that it, whatever, whatever, whatever societal ills that affect the black community, the black church has mm. to, has to pick that up. Um, that, that's, that's important because, I mean, even as we talk about like these black lives matter things and, you know, there's, there's always conversation like, oh, um, I don't want to support that social organization or and all that kind of stuff. And I understand all the challenges with that, but here's the thing, whatever ills affect the black community, the black church has to be the one to pick up the pieces. That's historically always been the case. And so um, sometimes there's a, there's a challenge in affirming the Imago Dei yeah. in people, but I, I would argue, I would argue we even go neither further. Affirm the mm. Imago Christi, right? Mm. Like the image of Christ, the church. It's one thing for uh, black citizens, black communities, they think. It's another thing for the black church to say we have a problem. If the black church is consistently saying we have a problem, then we need our black, we need our white brothers and sisters and our allies and other, in every uh, uh, other community, particularly Christian community to believe us when we say that. So just know this, that whatever the societal ills that affect the, the black community, it's going to be the black church that's, oh, that's going to have to deal with it. I, I want to ask you something I didn't prep you for. So forgive me. I, I made a post yesterday about black lives matter. And I said that, Black Lives Matter is both a declaration and an organization that 
Christ follower, you can earnestly profess the former without having to affirm every aspect of the latter. And I caught heat on both sides, actually. I caught heat on one side saying you can't say the phrase unless you're like fully endorsing the organization. And then the other side said, why, why is a Christian? Are you even uttering those words at all? It should be about the gospel by saying Black Lives Matter. I'm really disheartened to, to hear you say that. What, what would you say to the Christ follower that's grappling with some of that conversation? Well, I mean, I think you can make the distinction, right? Like we do it all the time, right? We, it's, it's, it's not a, um, I mean, I mean, this is, this has been white evangelicals argument mm. for Trump, right? Like, yeah, we, we support him with some things, but that don't mean that mm. we fully endorse. So, I mean, yeah, of course, of course it can happen. But I also want to know this is that the reason why the black, reason why that has gotten so much support in the black community, because it's a, it was a motif that was already present. In the, in the black community, that, they didn't come up with the phrase. This is this is just the expression of centuries mm-hmm. of how black folks have thought and understood and and, and known that our lives have and has not been mm-hmm. as equally valuable um, um, to, to white lives. That's not a that's not like a they didn't come up with that concept. They mm-hmm. just they just crystallized it. And um, of course, that means um, if we say with Black Lives Matter, we're saying. We matter right. too. That's the thing, right? It's not right. we matter only, right? Right? It's we matter too. So yeah. I'm wondering. Uh, yeah. This might be a hard one to do, but it, if everything, uh, how, what would you like to see happen in the next six months, a year from now? We we do we interview you a year from now, and we're looking back. What are you praying happens over the course of the next year? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm praying that. Um, Christians of various different communities will come together um, and start creating mm. legislation um, using our political power because we can talk about like again this is the kingdom of God where the kingdom of God is an inbreaking into mm. our, our reality and to start using that um, to kind of bring some real substantial change that's that's what I would hope I mean there are some things um, and this is a challenge because we have. Um, oftentimes Christianity kind of just being appropriated in, in particular cultural context. Um, but I, and so it's easy to kind of dismiss things that doesn't affect your cultural context, but I would love to see, would be a tremendous witness to see black, white, Latino, Asian Christians coming together to create some legislation that would, in, in this particular context, um, help bring about some change and some of the stuff that the black church has been talking about for mm-hmm. decades. Right. We only have about a minute left or so, but I'm going to try and shoehorn two questions in as we wrap up one. We only have like 20 minutes together. So I would love to know what like books or podcasts or films would you recommend people if they want to learn more, they want to take a deeper dive than just the 20 minutes that we have together. Where would you point people? And then secondly, how can we be praying for you, your family, your church, what you're doing? Uh, if you got time, yeah, just go ahead and tackle those two. Yeah, oh man, a lot of books. Um, I think the book is called The End of White Christian America by Robert P. Jones. Um, if you haven't read things, uh, uh, Michelle mm-hmm. Alexander's A New Jim Crow. Um, you can be praying. For, I mean, there's kind of a lot of book, books too, but um, the um, Jew 3 Project, they always do there's an urban apologetic uh, mm-hmm. context for the Jew 3 Project. You can pray for us, man. Pray for me. I'm, I'm trying to finish the dissertation. Um, obviously I'm trying to continue to stay, maintain, uh, right. a pastoral responsibilities. Um, yeah. And just pray for our community. We just, we're trying to, the black church is, I think, going to want to really, I've been telling everybody 
everybody needs to be writing right now. The Holy Spirit is speaking. We need to be chronicling the Holy Spirit is speaking. So pray for those who have that type of responsibility. Really good. Pastor Laws, thank you so much for joining us today. Been listening to Pastor Tyburn Laws, pastor at the Christian Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church, and also co-author of The Roundtable, A Christian's Conversation with Marginal Beliefs Affecting the Black Church Experience. Mm -hmm. Thank you so, so much for joining us on the show today. Really, Really appreciate it. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a whole smattering of places. A smorgasbord, as Brian likes to say. First off, Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's not only where we post articles, you can send us messages. You can have a lively conversation with other listeners right there based on the topics we're uh, talking about. If you have suggestions for future shows, by the way, we would love to hear from you. Also, uh, Twitter and Instagram, at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash the common good, and wherever it is you get podcasts. If you're listening live on the radio right now and you missed the interview we just did, by the way, go back and listen to the podcast. It was Pastor Tyron Laws, pastor at the Christian Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church and also co-author of a book called The Roundtable. Fascinating, fascinating interview. So grateful for him and so many others who are leading around our city super well. Brian, I want to talk to you about masks a little bit, if that's okay. Yep. And I, I haven't actually seen this tweet yet. Maybe it's somewhere, but I feel like maybe this is like a preacher thing. Have you ever preached a sermon? Like, I'm not talking this year, like previous years about how we shouldn't be wearing masks. Is that a, is that a uh, thing you said yeah. from the pulpit? Like, Have you said something like that before? Like metaphorically speaking, like right, right, like not being a hypocrite. Totally, you know, the, that's funny. The word, the word hypocrite means to wear two masks. I I dug in my archives. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> some of these posts and sermons did not age well at all. <laughs> Don't wear that's so. What I remember doing a uh, I spoke years ago at Wheaton Academy, and the whole thing was about not being a clown because you got masks on and you're like, that's really funny. We need to pull some of these out. <laughs> I don't think that's a good, that is not a good idea. We could like play sound bites of Brian and Ian from 10 years ago saying, don't wear masks. Don't that's wear masks. <laughs> just a really bizarre, but it is also interesting. And my wife and I were talking about this yesterday, how politicized even the wearing of masks has become. I think Unbelievable. It's, a, it's a little bit understandable. Her and I went on a long walk on Saturday with our boys and we were just making observations about how interesting, even on an hour-long walk, it was about 50-50. Some people were adamant about wearing them. Other people were behaving as if nothing was going on. And how you almost couldn't help jumping to some kind of conclusion about the person, whether they were wearing it or not, and realizing that's probably how a lot of people feel. So I have a couple articles in here. The third one isn't specifically about masks, but I wanted to talk a little bit about them. One from Forbes says, face masks may be the key determinant of the COVID-19 curve. The other one had to do with why wearing a mask while exercising might actually not be a smart idea, uh, mm-hmm. as is often the case here. I'm going to let you choose which of the two you want to go in on first. I want to give you a particular quote from the Forbes magazine. This okay. is uh, from the people who did. They're arguing that masks, um, as we open up, may be the central variable, they say, to Hmm. that determines the spread of the virus going forward. And here's their quote. So this is this team that put this study together in the journal of proceedings of the national Academy of the sciences. They said this, uh, our analysis reveals that the difference with and without mandated face covering represents the determinant in shaping the trends of the pandemic. And so 
That is no small statement right there. They basically right. have concluded, and this is a team from Texas A&M, the University of Texas at Austin, California Institute of Technology, and the University of California in San Diego. They wrote in this paper, and much of the article is about their research. So if you want to know more about the research, you can mm-hmm. go read this Forbes article. But they've said that the determinant factor in shaping the trend of the pandemic going forward, even above social distancing uh, and and staying at home and other things, is whether or not people are willing to wear face masks. And uh, that is in some ways um, encouraging because that's an easy fix, right? But like you already pointed out, in some ways it's really discouraging because it's already become this weird face masks has become this weird, like you said, political statement, um, kind of a, a, a little bit of mixed with like a machismo, like I'm tougher than having to wear face masks. Um, and, and like, it's a really strange, the politicizing of the face mask for me is a really weird deal. Like I understand not wearing the face mask outside. I don't, I totally get that. But when you're in a confined area with people and, what we've learned about how this uh, virus transmits, it seems like wearing of a face mask uh, is a simple way, not just if you just want to be really selfish about it, just to protect yourself. But beyond that, then to protect the other people around you uh, and this paper saying it is the determinant in shaping the trends of the pandemic is a really forceful statement. And I, and I imagine, too, there's some skepticism, right, because it feels like we've seen a bunch of scholarly work. From right. both sides of the quarantine debate, some saying like, got a quarantine, got a quarantine. And then like a month later, we're like, actually, that's a terrible idea. Get outside, get outside. Yeah. Like it's almost I mean, we've used the term information whiplash. I did see this uh, from The Onion earlier today, it says city enters phase four of pretending coronavirus is over. So <laughs> I don't know that that's actually helpful. It's obviously The Onion. It's uh, yeah. it's meant yes. to be a little tongue in cheek. It is interesting. Again, this is one of those things. We would love to hear from you at the Facebook page. Like, where do you land on this continuum? People maybe don't feel comfortable outing themselves, which is another interesting dynamic of this. The other thing, especially like on our walk, we saw a bunch of people biking and riding. And uh, this is from theconversation.com. It says, why it could be dangerous to exercise with a face mask on. Brian, are you doing most of your exercising with or without a mask right now? Uh, that presupposes something there, but I will say <laughs> when I'm outside going on, generally speaking here, I'll, I'll just put it this way. And okay. like you said, we're, we're kind of, uh, giving out how we are. You kind of put yourself out there a little bit. I am, I am all about the face mask inside like stores, restaurant, where not restaurants right now, but wherever I'm inside and outside, I'm not wearing face masks. So that's kind of the way we work. Um, and so if, and when I'm outside going for a walk or, playing with my kids. I'm not wearing a face mask. So how about you? You've been running. (laughs) Yeah, I have not actually done the running with the mask. The first time or two, I felt a little guilty about it. But then but then I read articles like this. Let me let me see if I can find the meat and potatoes here. It says yet a mask makes it harder to inhale the quantity of air needed to perform at the highest levels. I'm obviously not performing at the highest levels. Uh, at low to moderate intensity exercise, effort will feel slightly harder than normal with the mask, but you can still walk comfortably. When we do have heavy exercise, our muscles produce lactic acid, which causes the burning sensation. It is then converted to carbon dioxide and exhaled. But what happens if the carbon dioxide is trapped by the mask? As you move from moderate to heavy exercise, you may be rebreathing carbon dioxide, which can reduce cognitive function and increase breathing rate. So there's a whole lot more here. But like, have you heard people kind of taking that particular argument as it pertains to biking and running and all that? 
Yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> Personally, I don't know anybody who's exercising outside that is wearing a mask. Oh, no uh, kidding. Okay. okay. I don't. And so I hear a lot of like, well, it's just not just uncomfortable, but the kind of the stuff you read here that it's like hard to do and you can't breathe. Um, I feel like maybe, I don't know how you feel. I feel generally like the people in my life uh, are kind of doing it the way I am, wearing masks inside, but not outside. And I I think that's okay because everyone keeps saying outside so much better, but maybe I'm a little off on that. But that's kind of the, it's kind of the pathway I've chosen here. We would love to know. I mean, it's it's been interesting. Even the the couple of times my wife and I have ventured to some kind of outdoor eating, like we really like the the tables have to be really far apart, and the waiter or waitress is wearing a mask. And if you if you need to go inside to use the restroom, you need to wear a mask. Um, that whole experience has been very very strange. I don't know why. Probably because I'm just still not going out that much, to be honest. Uh-huh. So like. It does feel a little twilight zone. I don't know if anyone else feels that way. Again, all of this is on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Where do you land with the masks? You probably saw the graphic, I think it was yesterday or the day before, that of the 50 United States, Illinois had the largest decrease in cases. Yep. yep. So it feels like, man, a lot of this commentary online has been super fascinating, like what the reasons were for that and people yep. that were upset about the lockdown, maybe less upset now i don't know i mean 10 seconds left how, how do you where do you land in the whole mask debate like globally if someone from your church were to ask you how, how should i be proceeding i i would tell them you need to wear a mask inside you need to take care of yourself and the people around you i would say i believe the science that says masks are going to be a helper going forward i think outside keep some distance be a little more optional uh, if it makes you feel safer, go for it. But certainly inside, I think everybody should be wearing a mask. I think that's a good word, man. Well, coming up next, this may come as a surprise, but we're going to hear from the creator of VeggieTales and his perspective regarding race in America. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, what the Bible has to say about black anger, plus the creator of VeggieTales weighs in on race in America and will end... With some good news, you're listening to The Common Good. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, here for Hour 2. Brian Fromm, where can people find us on the social medias? Oh, all over the place. Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles and interviews, and we love to hear back from you uh, about these uh things that we're talking about. So feel free to go comment and talk to other people there. You can do the same at Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk, online, 1160hope.com. And finally, our podcast, get it wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe, rate, and review. That does help us. We are grateful for all of you who do listen to the podcast. That was real passionate. That was like wherever you Where, get the podcast. Uh, just I, I all those places. The rasp in your voice. It was very Michael W. Smith of you. Uh, oh, nice. <laughs> real briefly, before we dive into this article from Issa McCauley, who is kind of becoming a regular Scott Sauls on this That's show, right. isn't he? Uh, I want to tell you about Thrivent. You can learn more at Thrivent.com. I'm a Thrivent member, have been for a long time. You can also learn more about future career possibilities, Thrivent.com slash careers. And this Wednesday, 617, the best-selling author, Matthew Paul Turner, is going to be reading from his book, When God Made the World. It's a phenomenal book. That's at 11.30 a.m. Central Standard Time. Plus, the first 500 people who sign up 
will actually receive a copy of the book for free, which is like a $10 or $12 value. It's not, if you have little kids, by the way, and you're looking for like kids books that actually like pack a punch and have a message that this, this is absolutely, Matthew is an incredible writer and thinker and leader. So that's this Wednesday, 1130 AM. There's information over on our Facebook page. Highly encourage you to check it out. Uh, I mentioned earlier Esau, we, man, he has been, we've referenced him so many times yes. this last month or so. And uh, I have just incredibly grateful for his leadership, for his voice. I think he's, he just has this like prophetic insight in particularly like right now that I think is really needed. And he wrote an article for the New York times that has kind of blown up right now. And the headline says what the Bible has to say about black anger. What's going on here? Yeah. And it's, it's noteworthy to say that, you know, he's a, an Anglican priest, I believe, and a prophet, Wheaton, being asked to write for the New York Times. It's, yes, that is right. quite the open door. So he begins by talking about all that we're going through, right? George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and uh, all the anger. And he gets to this point. He says, the Bible is not silent about the rage of the oppressed. Mm-hmm. One of the most startlingly, startlingly violent passages in the Bible comes from the lips of the disinherited. In Psalm 137, the psalmist says, daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Esau says, how can wishing such an atrocity be in any sense a religious text? Hmm. Psalm 137 is a psalm of the traumatized. It depicts the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem, the sack of the city, sexual assault and brutalization of the innocent. What kind of song do you write if you're forced to watch the murder of your wife, your child and your neighbor? Psalm 137 uh, is trauma literature, the rage of those who live. The question isn't why the psalmist wrote this. The question is, what kind of song would the families of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd or Eric Garner be tempted to write after watching the video of their deaths. It would be raw. It would be unfiltered. But more than an expression of rage, this psalm is a written record in time. It is a call mm-hmm. to remember. This psalm and other psalms of rage require us to, the, to remember the trauma that led to their composition. I'll stop there for a second. Uh, that's a really stark way of looking at it. I've never even really considered the psalms of rage. Uh, and to read it like that uh, is really powerful. Well, and I'll give a brief shout out, too, because Dr. Robert Wallace uh, is a buddy of mine. He was a professor at Judson, who now pastors in much warmer climates. But he he is uh, he's been someone who has opened my eyes for years to like the rich diversity of the Psalms in ways that I don't think because for a lot of us, you know, our experience with the Psalms usually is something like needle stitched on a pillow or like watercolored on a nice mug. That's often how the Psalms are reduced. And he he's, he was certainly one of the first voices to really open my eyes to like the depth and intensity. Of a lot of the Psalms, if you'll allow me, Brian, that the rest of this is so good. I'd love, I'd love to just read some more of it. Yeah. He says the miracle of the Bible is not that it records the rage of the oppressed. The miracle is that it has more to say. The same texts that include a call for vengeance upon Israel's enemies. Look to the salvation of its oppressors. Isaiah 49 says it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. For Christians, rage, Psalm 137, must eventually give way to hope, Isaiah 49. And we find the spiritual resources to make this transition at the cross. Jesus could have called down the Psalms of rage upon his enemies and shouted a final word of defiance before he breathed his last. Instead, he called for forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. 
It was not a false reconciliation. Jesus experienced the reality of state-sponsored terror. That is why the black Christian has always felt a particular kinship with the crucified king from an oppressed ethnic group. The cross helps us make sense of the lynching tree. And Jesus' resurrection three days after his crucifixion shows that neither the lynching tree nor the cross have the final say about those whom God values. The state thought that violence could stop God's purposes. For the Christian, the resurrection makes clear the futility of the attempt. Further, Jesus' profound act of forgiving his opponents provides me with the theological resources to hope. Dare we speak of hope when chants of I can't breathe echo in the streets? Do we risk the criticism commonly levied at Christians that we move too quickly to hope and become faith uh, pacifies? Resurrection hope doesn't remove the Christian from the struggle for justice. It empties the state's greatest weapon, the fear of death, of its power. And then let me just, do we have time? I'm going to read the rest. Yep, go. He says, hope is possible if we recognize that it does not rule out justice. It is what separates justice from vengeance. Howard Thurman wrote in his classic work, Jesus and the, and the Disinherited, how, about how rage, once unleashed, tends to spill out beyond its intended target and consume everything. The hatred of our enemy that we take to the streets returns with us to our friendships, marriages, and communities. It damages our own souls. Christians contend for justice because we care about black lives, families, and communities. We contend for reconciliation after the establishment of justice because there must be a future that is more than mutual contempt and suspicion. But justice and reconciliation cannot come at the cost of black lives. The only peaceful future is a just future. And because Christians should be a people for peace, we must be a people for justice, even when it seems ever to elude us. Too many black lives have been lost to accept anything else. That That is a powerful word. In the, in the minute or so that we have left, maybe even in particular, Brian, in light of some of these really, really helpful conversations we've had over the last three weeks, What's your what's your takeaway from what he's saying here? Oh, man, it's right there at the end, right? Because Christians should be a people for peace. And that's making a big assumption that we would all say. And the question is, are we really that? Mm. And because Christians should be a people for peace, we must be a people for justice, even when it seems ever to elude us. Like if if ultimately we are to be uh, peacemakers and reconcilers, then we've got to be able to call out where there's injustice and say right. uh, we're going to be. Uh, as the church, the the African-American church, but also the white church and every we're, we're going to be part of the solution because as a Christian, we are people of justice and peace. I think this is really powerful. I just picture what's I keep getting uh, hung up on the fact that this was in the New York Times. You know, somebody reading this yeah. who's not a Christ follower, just reading their New York Times must really be taken aback by this. And I think that's why uh, it's so powerful that Esau was able to write this in the New York Times. And it's worth saying, too, this is an excerpt from a forthcoming book, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Um, I don't mm. know about you, but I am, I am really, really looking, looking forward to that. As always, this article is posted on our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think, what stands out, what really kind of resonates, what would you push back against. We'd love for that to be a place for us to kind of continue the conversation. Well, coming up next, a guy named Phil Vischer. Many of you will be familiar with that name. He's the creator of VeggieTales, also co-host of the Holy Post podcast. He weighs in on race in America, and we're going to learn together what he has to say. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we're posting our articles, even stuff we don't talk about. You can send us a message if you have a suggestion, or you just want to give us a digital high five. 
can also find us at 1160hope.com slash the common good and wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you would not mind, and it takes just a moment or two, subscribing, rating, reviewing, and sharing the podcast really helps us out a whole lot. It changes the algorithm so that more people can find this show. And many of you, I know when I use the name Phil Vischer, you will be familiar with that name for probably a lot of reasons, but most notably, the creator of VeggieTales. He also co-hosts a podcast called The Holy Post Podcast. And he released a video about race in America that I thought was so fascinating that I wanted to spend two segments just sort of learning from Phil Vischer about this very, very important topic. So we're going to take this segment and the next segment to just simply learn from Phil Vischer. We need to talk about race. Why are people protesting? Why are people angry? Slavery ended 150 years ago. The civil rights movement was 60 years ago. Racial discrimination is illegal now. Heck, we even had a black president. So why are people still upset? We're going to go through history and we're going to look at some data. And we're going to go quickly so this video doesn't get too long. So, hang on. These are two households in America. One is black, the other is white. Today, the average black household has 60% of the income of the average white household, but only one-tenth of the household wealth. Why does that matter? Well, household wealth helps send kids to school, helps launch small businesses, stabilizes loss of income, and helps families survive catastrophic events like divorce or unemployment. What's amazing about this number is that there are lots of extremely wealthy African Americans. Movie stars, pop stars, 75% of the NBA, 70% of the NFL, Oprah, Tyler Perry, Ben Carson, Morgan Freeman. And there are a lot of extremely poor white families. Think of Appalachia and other parts of rural America. But even when we factor all that in, the average black household still has only one-tenth the wealth of the average white household. How did that happen? Well, here we go. What happened after we freed the slaves, after the Civil War ended? Nine states enacted vagrancy laws, making it a crime to not have a job. The law was applied only to black men. Eight of those states then allowed prisoners, the black men who'd just been arrested for not having a job, to be hired out to plantation owners with little or no pay going to the prisoners themselves. So, that's right, men who had been freed from the plantations found themselves right back on the plantations. Additional laws prohibited mischief and insulting gestures, which allowed more black men to be arrested and created a huge market for convict leasing. Working conditions for these leased convicts could be worse than slavery because the plantation owner leasing the black prisoner had no long-term interest in his well-being. By the turn of the 20th century, every state in the South had mandated racial segregation by law, Jim Crow laws, which supported a social ostracism for blacks that extended to schools, churches, housing, jobs, restrooms, hotels and restaurants, hospitals, prisons, funeral homes, morgues, and cemeteries. White politicians competed with each other to be more strict and specific on segregation. For example, a law prohibiting blacks and whites from playing chess together. No interracial chess playing. That might lead to lawn darts. In 1896, the Supreme Court ruled that these Jim Crow laws were perfectly legal because they, quote, reflected customs and traditions and, quote, preserved public peace and good order. These laws stayed in place until 1954, when the idea of separate but equal was struck down in the ruling known as Brown versus Board of Education. So what happened next after Brown? 
Well, in 1956, the Southern Manifesto was signed by 101 out of 128 Congress members from the South, pledging to maintain Jim Crow by all means possible. Five states passed nearly 50 new Jim Crow laws after 1954. Private whites-only schools, dubbed segregation academies, popped up all across the South, many of them Christian. But now widespread civil rights protests, combined with anti-war protests that were occasionally becoming violent, inspired the political rise of law and order rhetoric. Richard Nixon became the first candidate to campaign specifically on a platform of law and order. In 1968, 81% of Americans agreed that law and order had broken down in this country, and the majority blamed communists and Negroes who start riots. Let's go back to household wealth. The average black household has one-tenth the wealth of the average white household. Why is that? Because the number one source of intergenerational wealth in America is home ownership. And from the 1930s to well into the 1960s, the federal government enacted policies to actively encourage white families to own homes and discourage black families from doing the same. In 1934, the Federal Housing Administration created a risk rating system to determine which neighborhoods were safe investment for federally backed mortgages. Black neighborhoods were deemed too risky, marked off in maps with red ink, in a practice now known as redlining. After World War II, a boom of new suburban housing was built all over the country, much of it restricted by deed to whites only. In 1948, 40% of new housing developments in Minneapolis, for example, had covenants prohibiting purchase by African Americans. So blacks couldn't live in white neighborhoods and couldn't get federally insured loans for black neighborhoods. Until 1950, the Realtor's Code of Ethics specifically prohibited selling a house in a white neighborhood to a non-white family. You could lose your Realtor's license if you helped a black family buy a home in a white neighborhood. In the 1930s, the FHA's underwriting manual said, quote, incompatible racial groups should not be permitted to live in the same communities. The FHA went on to recommend that highways would be a great way to separate black neighborhoods from white neighborhoods. The FHA funded huge white-only suburban housing developments, leaving blacks behind in inner cities. After World War II, the GI Bill provided subsidized mortgages to help millions of men returning from war to buy their first home. While technically eligible for the GI Bill, the way it was administered left one million black veterans largely on the outside looking in. In New York and New Jersey, the GI Bill insured more than 67,000 new mortgages. Fewer than 100 of those went for homes purchased by non-whites. In 1947, there were 3,200 mortgages in Mississippi guaranteed by the government for returning veterans. Of the 3,200, only two went to black veterans. As a result, white families after the war were able to build home equity, growing wealth for retirement, inheritance, and college education for their kids. One historian has stated that there was no greater instrument for widening an already huge racial gap in post-war America than the GI Bill. And then came the war on drugs. 
Inner-city blacks were extremely vulnerable economically. The overwhelming majority of African Americans in 1970 lacked college degrees and had grown up in fully segregated schools. In the second half of the 20th century, factories and manufacturing jobs moved to the suburbs. Black workers struggled to follow the jobs. They couldn't live in many of the new suburban developments. And as late as 1970, only 28% of black fathers had access to a car. When a white man in Cicero, Illinois, just outside Chicago, sublet an apartment to a black family, the white community rioted, setting fire to the apartment building and smashing windows until the National Guard had to intervene. The result of all of this. In 1970, 70% of African-American men had good blue-collar jobs. By 1987, only 28% did. As unemployment skyrocketed in African-American communities, so did drug use. As drug use increased, so did crime. A dynamic today that we see playing out in white rural communities hit hard by unemployment and opioid addiction. Throughout the 1970s, white America became increasingly concerned by images of black violence shown on TV and in magazines. Drugs were the problem. Drug dealers and drug users were the enemy. So we decided to treat the drug epidemic not as a health crisis, but as a crisis of criminality, and we militarized our response. During the Reagan-Bush years from 1981 to 1991, how we invested money in anti-drug allocation completely changed. The anti-drug budget for the Department of Defense went from $33 million in 1981 to more than $1 billion in 1991. The Drug Enforcement Agency's budget to fight criminality and drug use went from $86 million to more than $1 billion. Then we came to the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which carried mandatory minimum sentences, much harsher for the distribution of crack cocaine, which was associated with blacks, than powder cocaine, which was associated with whites. Mandated evictions from public housing for any tenant who permitted drug-related criminal activity to occur on or near premises. It eliminated many government benefits, including student loans, for anyone convicted of a drug crime. The 1988 revision set a five-year minimum sentence for possessing any amount of crack cocaine, even if there was no intent to distribute. Previously, it had been a one-year maximum sentence for possessing any amount of any drug without the intent to distribute. Coming up next will be part two of Phil Vischer on race in America. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are all over the World Wide Web. In case you were wondering, The Common Good Radio Show is where you can find us on Facebook, we post our articles. You can send us messages. Not only you can send us, we would love for you to send us messages, encouragements, challenges, articles. If you have an interview idea, we would love to hear from you. You can also find us at 1160hope.com slash the common good, Instagram and Twitter at common good talk, and wherever it is you find podcasts. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, reviewing, and sharing, all of those things really do help us out a whole lot. And we're so grateful for those of you who already have done that. This is a, a, a part two segment, which we don't often do, but we've been listening to Phil Vischer, who most notably for a lot of us is the creator of VeggieTales, also the co-host of a podcast called The Holy Post Podcast. And he released a video about race in America. And here is part two of that particular video. 
Now, it might seem like we're picking on Republicans, so now it's time to pick on some Democrats. During the Clinton presidency, the funding for public housing was cut by $17 billion. At the same time, the funding for prisons increased by $19 billion. The number of Americans imprisoned for drug crimes exploded. In 1980, there were 41,000 Americans imprisoned for drug crimes. Today, there are more than a half million, more than the entire 1980 prison population. Most arrests are for possession. In 2005, 80% of the arrests were for possessing drugs, not selling drugs. In a bizarre twist, we also militarized our police forces. Between 1997 and 1999, the Pentagon handled 3.4 million orders for military equipment from more than 11,000 police agencies, including 253 aircraft, including Black Hawk and Huey helicopters, 7,800 M16 rifles, 181 grenade launchers, grenade launchers for the police, 8,000 bulletproof helmets, 1,200 night vision goggles. We also changed policing tactics. A no-knock entry is when a SWAT team literally breaks down your door or smashes in through the windows, like in E.T., when the cops come flying in from every direction looking for E.T. So back to Minneapolis. In 1986, Minneapolis SWAT teams performed no-knock entries 35 times. Ten years later, in 1996, they performed no-knock entries 700 times. That's two every day. There were financial incentives for arresting more drug users. Federal grants to local police departments were tied to the number of drug arrests. Research suggests the huge surge in arrests from increased drug enforcement was due more to budget incentives than to actual increases in drug use. So what was the result? An explosion of our prison population. In 25 years, the U.S. prison population went from 350,000 to over 2.3 million. The United States now has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. We imprison a higher percentage of our black population than South Africa ever did during apartheid. Data shows that the increased prison population was driven primarily by changes in sentencing policy. There was no visible connection between higher incarceration rates and higher violent crime rates. If you are a drug felon, you are barred from public housing. You are ineligible for food stamps. You're forced to check the box on employment applications marking yourself as a convicted felon. A criminal record has been shown to reduce the likelihood of getting a callback or job offer by as much as 50%. The negative impact of a criminal record for an African-American job applicant is twice as large as for a white applicant. In 2006, one in 106 white men was behind bars. For black men, it was one in 14. For black men between the age of 20 and 35, the age where families are built, it's one in nine. Overall, African Americans and white Americans use drugs at roughly the same rate. But the imprisonment rate of African Americans for drug charges is almost six times that of whites. It may be true that there isn't explicit racism in our legal system anymore, but it doesn't mean justice is blind. A study, a law in Georgia, permitted prosecutors to seek life imprisonment for a second drug offense. Over the period of the study, this law was used against 1% of white second-time offenders and 16% of black second-time offenders. As a result, 98% of prisoners serving life sentences under this law were black. 
study. African-American youth in the U.S. make up 16% of all youth, but 28% of all juvenile arrests, 35% of youth sent to adult court instead of juvenile court, and 58% of youth admitted to adult state prison. Study. Blacks on the New Jersey Turnpike make up 15% of all drivers, but 42% of all stops by police and 73% of all arrests. Among all drivers stopped, white drivers were two times more likely than black drivers to be carrying drugs. Study. Volusia County, Florida. 5% of drivers were black or Latino, but 80% of drivers stopped were black or Latino. Study, Oakland, California. Black drivers are twice as likely as white drivers to be stopped and three times more likely to be searched. In Minneapolis, Philando Castile had been pulled over 49 times in 13 years, mostly for minor infractions. The 49th time he was pulled over, he was shot by the officer while sitting inside his car. He'd been pulled over for a broken taillight. Chuck Colson's organization, Prison Fellowship, recently organized a manifesto that was signed by evangelical leaders asserting that our over-reliance on incarceration fails to make us safer or restore the people and communities who have been harmed. Unconscious bias seeps into schools, too, as white teachers often assume black students are less intelligent than they actually are. A gifted student usually has to be recommended by a teacher to move to a gifted track. When a teacher is black, an equally gifted white and black student have comparable chances of being recommended. When the teacher is white, the black student's odds of being recommended are cut in half. Are white teachers racist? No. Are they affected by bias? Yes. And it affects black students every day. So where are we? The average black household has one-tenth the wealth of the average white household. This didn't happen by accident. It happened by policy. We, the majority culture, told them where they could live and where they couldn't. Then we moved most of the jobs to the places we told them they couldn't live. When the predictable explosion of unemployment and poverty resulted in a predictable increase in drug use and crime, we criminalized the problem. We built $19 billion of new jails and sold grenade launchers to the police. As a result, a white boy born in America today has a 1 in 23 chance of going to prison in his lifetime. For a black boy, it's 1 in 4. And that is why people are angry. Many people care deeply about these issues. Many have suggested solutions. Some of those have been tested, with results ranging from moderate success to abject failure. I'm not here to tell you what the right solutions are, because I don't know. I'm just here to ask you to do one thing. It is the thing that begins every journey to a solution for every problem. What am I asking you to do? Care. Well, we're super grateful for Phil Vischer and his wisdom, his insight. We would love to know what you think. This is posted on our Facebook page. If you want to weigh in in the comment section, what do you like? What do you not like? What do you agree with? What do you disagree with? We would love for our Facebook page to be a place for that dialogue. And as we wrap up the show today, coming up next, some good news. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some 
everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. That music is different than Interweb Insanity music, but it's still going to be a fun way to end the show. That is the music for a segment we like to call Some Good News. I know that uh, I know if you're logging on Facebook or Twitter, turning on your TV, there's probably a lot of maybe not bad news, but at least like heavy news. There's a lot of right. gravity in the world. And every once in a while, Brian and I like to dedicate an entire segment to just simply sharing some good news. Really, probably our main source for all of those stories is the Good News Network. You can learn more at goodnewsnetwork.org. Before we dive into those five stories, I have five, I have five links, Brian. I'm feeling really optimistic today. Yes. I don't know why I thought we would get through all five, but you can find us a few places. Why don't you tell them? I'm talking a lot. You tell them where they can find us. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk, online, 1160hope.com, and our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. That does help us a lot. Go ahead and share it with somebody. Let them know about the program or the podcast, and uh, we are thankful for those of you who do listen, and I'm excited for some good news now. I kind of like program. I feel like calling a what we do a program is like calling a movie a motion picture. You gotta like, you gotta <laughs> like to say it like you're from the forties. Like, hey, you wanna go see a motion picture? Sure do. Like that's that's kind of what that conjured for me. Is that accurate? Yeah, the funny thing is when I said program, my first thought was what? <laughs> <laughs> it's a P word. You were going with podcast, your brain said program. Also, what do you guys call like the pieces of paper that you would hand people as they entered your church on a Sunday? What do you call those? A bulletin. Oh, you do? You call them bulletins. All right. Yes. Yes, like, how about I yourself? Think, I think we call them programs. I, I might okay. be wrong. Handout? Tree tree killer? I don't I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what we call them. Anyway. Right. Garbage. <laughs> yeah, right. I look forward to seeing this on the floor in a half hour. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> all right. I mentioned I have five in here. You know what? It's kind of fun just to let you choose. You can choose which of these five you want to start with. Okay. I'll do the first one. Drones will drop library books so kids in Virginia can keep reading thanks to the, to a librarian's bright idea. That's brilliant. The COVID-19 pandemic has closed schools and public libraries, but a librarian in Virginia has thought of a creative way to keep kids reading free of charge. The solution? Drones deliver the books of their choice straight to their door. Uh, Kelly Pasek, a middle school librarian, is an early adopter of drone delivery service. Uh, launched by a Google spinoff company called Wing, the pilot project haha, was has been delivering <laughs> her meals and household products for some time. It didn't take long for Kelly to connect the dots to see how this technology uh, could benefit the children in her district. So I'll stop there. She's delivering library books by drones. What an awesome idea. Yeah, I hear stuff like this. I don't know why my brain goes here. When I read stories like this, I think, what am I doing with my life? Like, what? <laughs> like it's, it's innovative and it's giving back. And I don't know this, this whole segment always just gives me the feels and I'm grateful for it. This next one is a different kind of story. I could not believe I actually fact checked this. I could not believe this was true. So here's the headline. Um, dogs trained to sniff out COVID-19 score near perfect in diagnosis of human sweat samples. Have you heard anything about I this? Never heard this. No. Uh, it says, does sweat from someone's infected, uh, someone infected with COVID-19 have a unique scent? Researchers in Paris and elsewhere believe it does. And we now know dogs can sniff it out. A new study from researchers at the National Veterinarian School in Alfort outside of Paris trained eight Belgian. Oh, boy. What's that dog name there? Melanoise. OK, so you don't know what that is. OK, I feel better because nope. you're like nope. a dog guy. And I thought I'm going to butcher this. Belgian Malinois shepherds to identify the smell of COVID-19 and the sweat of infected individuals. The dog's overall success rate 
was near perfect, correctly guessing an average of 95% of samples. Four dogs successfully identified a positive COVID sweat sample 100% of the time. I don't know why people aren't doing backflips right now. This is an incredible finding, and I don't know how you ever even get to the point to figure out how dogs know how to do this, but I I just found that story fascinating. That is crazy. All right, next one. They recycle electronics and people's lives by giving ex-felons good jobs to imagine a better world. Amazing. A San Francisco company on a mission to reimagine waste is now providing meaningful work to ex-convicts, making them partners in building a more sustainable world. Brightmark's main projects have included an innovative plastics recycling program and developing renewable natural gas from food and agricultural waste. But now... Brightmark has partnered with the Social Enterprise Recycle Force to recycle electronics. And while Recycle Force uh, certainly helps our planet, they also uplift the humans living on it by training formerly incarcerated men and women transitioning back to society. Many former prisoners who are committed to bettering themselves face great barriers for employment. That's why Recycle Force's work is so important and the results speak for themselves only 23% of those who participate in its pro- programs go on to reoffend compared to 60 to 75% average nationwide. That's a really cool story. You're an office fan. Tell me when you hear Recycle Force. What was Dwight? What did he dress up as? It's <laughs> <laughs> so funny because uh, I was just waiting for you to stop because I wanted to say, I think Recycle Force was one of the Transformers. But oh, you no. Know, it, uh, no. You know what? Uh, Dwight kept dressing up as Recyclops. <laughs> Recyclops. Holy cow. Brian Fromm, my hat off to you for the reference of the day. That is the Thank reference you. of the day. That's really, really funny. All right. We got two more. Oh, we got time. All right. We got time. Next one here. New website, quote, Pandemic of Love connects 132,000 people in need of aid with those who can help. See, this is one of those like oh. like faith and humanity restored type stories. It says, in times of crisis, we often don't hear about the many quiet, compassionate responses made in those moments. Quietly in South Florida, a woman started an online grassroots effort originally meant to make a modest impact in her community. Now it has raised millions of dollars for hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Local mindfulness teacher Shelly Tigel, Tigel, oh boy, Shelly, launched her <laughs> pandemic of love in Fort Lauderdale after seeing people around her losing their jobs, worried not just about money, but also their health amidst COVID-19 crisis. Her social media feeds grew abuzz with fear and anxiety, and Shelly sensed an opportunity in the difficulty. Here's what she says. I wanted to turn from this environment of fear to an opportunity for us to create connection, community, and strengthen the bonds of love between us. It all started out very simple. When Shelly posted a video on her Instagram on March 14th, she announced a new program aimed at connecting those with a need due to a loss of income with those who are in a position of privilege and may be able to be of some service. When she went to bed that night, she wasn't sure how much good her efforts would do. By morning, she'd received 400 requests for assistance and 500 offers to help. That's my favorite part. 400 people requesting help, but then 500 people just overnight saying, yeah, I I could help. This to me, I don't have like a big moral the story for these stories, by the way, but just like the reminder that you might not think your little idea, your little innovation, your little whatever could have that big an impact. Like stories like this to me. I know this is like a feel good segment of the show, whatever. It it just like gives me a sense of like, yeah, just try it out. Try the yeah. thing that you think could really make an impact and, uh, and maybe it actually will. Absolutely. Last one will make you feel good too. Teen that cleaned up city for 10 hours after protest receives car and scholarship as a thank you. That's amazing. 
A high school senior from Buffalo was dismayed to see damage caused by protests in his hometown. He didn't waste a minute more on worrying, though, and instead began cleaning it up, starting at 2 a.m. and continuing for 10 straight hours. Now his community is handsomely rewarding him for his good deed. Antonio Gwynn Jr. didn't give much thought to his positive actions. He just wanted to make sure that people would have no trouble commuting to work the next morning. After seeing the damage on the news, he simply decided to get out there and help uh, uh, help on the spur of the moment. When an organized cleanup crew arrived at Bailey Avenue the next morning to begin clearing away damage, they were pleasantly surprised to see that Antonio had already done most of the work. Word of what Antonio did spread fast with a news report airing on WKPW. When Matt Block saw the report, he knew what to do with a 2004 Mustang convertible that he had previously been reluctant to part with. I couldn't come to grips with selling it, and this was a good way for me to get rid of it and know somebody, uh, someone that gets it is going to really appreciate it. That is a feel-good story all around, but it starts with a kid going, I see a problem, like you said, and I'm just going to go do something about it, not looking for a car or looking for stuff, but just out of his own concern for his community. Well, and hopefully this segment uh, restored even just a little bit of your faith in humanity. All those stories and more can be found at goodnewsnetwork.org. I highly recommend you not just to peruse it, but bookmark it, make it a regular part of your digital diet because it never ceases to kind of make my day or my week. And we're super grateful for them. Super grateful for all of you. If you're listening via the podcast right now, the show is done and you can just sort of scroll onto the bottom and subscribe, rate, and review. All of that does really help us out a whole lot. We're so grateful for all of you listening, all of your participation, all of your prayers and comments. It is such a joy to have this platform and this opportunity to be with you all. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. here on AM 1160. Hope you're left.